Shabbat Shalom. Welcome to Tree of Life Congregation. Today we're going to be continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Ruth. Last time we were together, we learned that the book of Ruth actually takes place during the times when the judges were judging Israel, or during the book of Shoftim. This book bears the name of its primary protagonist, Ruth, which is root in Hebrew. It means friendship. This book serves as a stark contrast to its predecessor, which is the book of Judges, for we saw that in that book, the people did what was right in their own eyes. We see that the people got trapped in a false thought, in the false narrative that it is our broken social mores that dictate the morals of the world. This is nothing new. We see this happen in our world and in our society today as well. We believe that our mores or the way that our thoughts and our feelings direct us is what declares absolute truth. And that simply is not true. We see that absolute truth comes from the creator, from the beginning of creation. There is right and there is wrong. However, in the book of Ruth, we see that God will take these broken vessels, our broken vessels, and repair them and bring them back into alignment with his righteous standards, his absolute truths. We remembered from last time that the book of Ruth is something absolutely special. In fact, it's the only book in the entire Tanakh named after a Gentile. And it's only one of two books in the entire Bible, the other being Esther, that are named after women. It's the story of faith or trusting of Naomi. In fact, the book's overarching theme can be summarized in the idea that sometimes living a life of faith or trusting can be hard and uncomfortable for us. No one said it was going to be easy. In fact, the majority of times we find that as we live our lives in faith and trusting in God, the majority of the times it is difficult. There is suffering. It is hard. But there's a great reward and great benefit as we go forward in it. The book of Ruth is about the journey we're all partaking in, including all of its ups and downs. Ruth is a book that reminds us that there's always hope, even when we don't see it, when God is moving in the background. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, we read that in the days when judges were governing, there was a famine in the land. A man, whose name was Elimelech, went from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to dwell in the region of Moab with his wife Naomi and his two sons, Malon and Kilian. Elimelech means, my God is king. Malon means sickly, and Chilion means wasting away. Very interesting names. We didn't go over them that much because there was so much more to go over last time. But those names in and of themselves tell us that there's a great story taking place here because we did. We found out last time that they ran from a famine, Ruth and her husband, or her husband and Ruth and their children, ran away from a famine to the land of Moab. And in that land, the famine of Israel eventually dies, but so does Ruth's husband, followed later on by her two sons who were married to two uh, Gentile women. During that time, Naomi tells the two girls after the death of their husbands to return to the land of Moab, and they should go back to their families. We see one of them says, okay, sure, I'm out. I'm going back to my home, to my family. And the other one says, no, 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 no. I'm going to stay with you, Ruth. For where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. 
Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And that brings us to today's verse. Verse 18. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she no longer spoke to Ruth about it. So the two of them went on until they arrived in Bethlehem. And as soon as they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole city was excited because of them. And the women asked, is this Naomi? So this is interesting. So they're leaving the land of Moab now, coming back to the land of Israel, which they should have never left to begin with. And I find it really cool that they're leaving this land that has been destitute. They've lost everything. They've been thrown under the bottom of the land. And they're coming back to a land, Judah, which means praise, to a city called Bethlehem, or house of bread. So they're leaving what they've lost. They've become destitute to go to the praise of God and to receive the bread of life, if I can make this stretch here a little bit. So they're making the right steps. They are repenting, if we could say it like that, and they're making this journey to come back toward God. But she replied as they came back, do not call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, because Shaddai has made my life bitter. I went away full, but Adonai has brought me back empty. Why should you call me Naomi, which means pleasant, since Adonai has testified against me, and Shaddai has brought calamity on me? So this word Shaddai, we often hear it connected with El, El Shaddai. We know that he is El Shaddai. That is one of the names of God. Now, Shaddai, Shindalit Yod, means sufficient one. Quite often, this gets mistranslated as God Almighty in our English translations. Now, we can get away with that because I guess the idea, if you go far enough, it, it is the idea that God is almighty, he is in control, he's going to be enough. But if we go back to the Hebrew, it, it all makes a lot more sense. We're going to get a little PG-13. I'm sorry. I, I apologize up in front. Because the word shad in the Hebrew actually means breast. And El Shaddai is the many-breasted one. So this idea isn't to put forth, to, to, to have us think that God is in any way female in gender, but that he has multiple characteristics, both male and female. You think about a woman has the parts needed to give nourishment to a child. And Adonai would go on and say, my name, one of my names is Al Shaddai. You can refer to me as that because I have more than enough for you. You know, I have plenty available to nourish you and to give you what you need and to help you to grow. In this, we also see in this word that Adonai serves as serving as both the creator and the nurturer of humankind, both which are feminine traits. Man cannot create a baby. Add that in there. We're there. We do our part. But after that, it's all up to the woman. She creates the baby. She nurtures the baby. When the baby's brought forth, she continues to nourish the baby. Those are roles that the creator plays, and women get to have a part in that, and that's a beautiful thing. So when we see God referred to as El Shaddai, it suggests the idea of a mother providing nourishment for her baby through the production of milk. 
The idea that Naomi uses the name Shaddai, or sufficient one, in connection with the negative ideas of accusation and calamity shows that she believes that not that he has sufficiently provided for her, but that he has sufficiently meted out punishment toward her sin of leaving the land. It's an interesting concept. So she, her hope in returning to the land is that this might be turned around. She has sufficiently received enough punishment and now she's seeking to sufficiently receive enough nourishment to get back on her feet. The Al-Sheikh paraphrases Naomi's response to them as saying this. It's as if she said, don't think that I was righteous when I left and that God punished me unjustly. No, call me embittered one because my deeds were bitter and God justly dealt bitterly with me. So Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore because I am not pleasant. In fact, I was in the wrong and I need to repent. And God has dealt harshly with my sin by taking my three, the three men who are in my life. Naomi's life circumstances have brought her to a place where she believes that God has punished her for leaving the land of promise to dwell in a foreign land among foreign people. However, it's interesting that we don't see the scripture make an upfront front accusation against her, her actions, or her current circumstance which she finds herself in. The scripture is silent. God does not declare, yes, you are wrong, Naomi. That's why I took your three men in your life. No, we don't see that. Instead, we see the creator give us a glimpse into the emotional pain and upheaval that she is feeling. She feels like it's her fault. She bears this guilt, this burden. Had I not left the land, my children and my husband would still be alive. Maybe. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us that they would still be alive. And yet she's, she's internalized that on herself and taken that guilt upon herself. Feeling and emotions are real. They are one of the key things that actually set us apart from the rest of creation. We all have them. Through feelings and, and emotions, we communicate and we interpret the world around us. And yet, if left unchecked, these vital assets to our being bring about massive damage to ourselves and those around us, especially bitterness, which is what we see her dealing with here. In Hebrew, the word bitter, mara, which is what she said to call herself, means to be bitter. This is, you'll recognize this word from when we have our Passover Seder, the mara, the bitter herbs that we taste to remind us of our slavery. And this is what she says. She says, I am mara from now on. I'm no longer pleasant. I am a bitter woman. And we all know bitter men and women in our lives. And we love on them and we pray for them daily because bitterness is toxic. Now, in the English, bitterness is really interesting. So in the Hebrew, when you see the word bitter, it just means bitter. Like, it's just, just bitter. Okay, well, how do we define bitter? And this is one point where I like the English, because the English comes to the rescue and delves so deeply into what the word bitter means that it's, it just brings a whole new light on what she is actually saying here. So in the English, the definition of bitterness is having a peculiar 
or acrid taste, so something physical on the tongue. The second definition is it's producing a pain in the body or in the mind, feeling or showing hate or resentment, and a stinging, sharp, or severe pain, which is caused by the saying of words. So in other words, bitterness is not simply a bodily sensation that we have on our tongue, but it's an amalgam of all the senses, including our thoughts and our mind. It's all-inclusive. It's, it's a harsh thing that hurts us from the very essence of who we are. It engulfs us. It affects our thought process and wreaks havoc upon the very core of who our being is. In other words, if bitterness is not handled in a proper manner, it will begin to grow within us like a cancer. And just like a cancer, it will devour us from the inside out. This is what Naomi's dealing with. This is what she's struggling with. This cancer, how long did she spend in the land before she decided to, or in the land of Moab, before she decided to come back? That whole trek back, think of the miles she had to walk. Just thinking about that, dwelling on it over and over and over. And we know how that goes. When we dwell on something over and over again, it gets worse and worse when we dread having that conversation with that individual, whether it be an estranged friend or a spouse or someone who jaded you. We dwell on it over and over, and each time the conversation gets worse and worse and worse and worse until our stomach is just in knots. She, she had that thought process going in. How many times she must have practiced what she was going to say when people approached her when she reached her city? Oh, you're back. What happened? I lost everything. Oh, yeah, what happened? Well, it was my fault. Is it really? The rehearsal of it over and over again. There are two primary sources of bitterness that we run into in our lives. And they, spur and they grow out of guilt and offense. For example, on the guilt side, feeling guilty for not speaking up or saying something when we should have. You know what I really should have said? If we don't get over that, it just burns and it keeps going and it makes it worse in our soul. The guilt of choosing to do the wrong thing. Oh man, I'm a knucklehead, Adonai. Adonai, God could never forgive me. Yeah, he can. The guilt of missed opportunities. If I had only, then I'd be rich and the feeling of inadequacy or never being enough. I'm never enough for God. God can never use me. These things begin what the Bible would refer to as a root of bitterness. They grow and they fester, and like a cancer, they spread. The second primary offense is an offense. It's unforgiveness for perceived wrong from others towards us. And I picked the word perceived wrong on purpose. Because, you know, there's times where we think we wronged someone and we talk with them later on and we're like, I don't remember that. Because so often we play this game in our minds where we perceive that we've offended somebody and we build this whole scenario that grows into a bitter seed and it just tears us up inside and we talk to them eventually about it and they say, yeah, I don't remember that. You made a big deal about it. When we're heading toward bitterness, we often find ourselves saying things like, how could they have said or done that to me? They should have known that would have offended me. Why did they say that? Here's one we hear a lot. Well, I can forgive, but I can never forget. 
as if that's a righteous answer and makes you holy. I can forgive, but I can never forget. Can you really forgive if you don't make the leeway to not rectify and forget the situation happen? I mean, that is what love and what mercy is. It makes a, it's us making ourselves vulnerable. It doesn't mean we don't learn from our past experiences, but it means we make ourselves vulnerable once again to possibly be hurt. That's the human condition. Welcome to life and living. We encounter things like this all the time. You know, so many of us coming into this movement have felt slighted by a spiritual leader in one way or another. That's why a lot of us are here. We question the Bible, and then we're slighted by the pastor or an elder, and we're like, fine, I'm out, I'm going to find something else. And now we're here once, now we're here. You know, I have my own experience with this. The, a pastor that we were a part of before, you know, accused me of something that I didn't do. I was very upset. I was very jaded. It led me to start to question him and everything that he taught me. It's not healthy. Questioning things is okay. Learning and growing, researching, those are beautiful things that help us to grow and to learn. But, you know, eventually we have to calm down and, like I like to say, be a normal person. You know, we can't be jaded forever. We can't always think the government's out to get us, or we can't trust the rabbis, or we can't trust the Jews, or we can't trust the Gentiles, and that Catholic church, you know, at some point we got to calm down and make ourselves vulnerable once again, because it's only through our vulnerability that we end up loving one another, and that's what makes us vulnerable, is we put ourselves out there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 actually hits on this, and it says... Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame will not be pulled out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue shalom, that is peace, with everyone, and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and see to it that no bitter root springs up and causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Also see to it that there is no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his birthright for one meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance for repentance, though he begged for it with tears. You know, that's why this time of Elul is so important for us in our movement. Because it's a time of inward reflection and honest judgment. I'm not asking you to judge me. I'm, you're not asking me to judge you. But judge ourselves. I, as Chris, need to look into my inward being and say, okay, there are some things I need to deal with, and I need to be absolutely honest with myself that what I'm choosing to do is sin, and I have to take care of it. This, this is the time to do it. As we come into these final days leading up to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, this is the time for inner reflection and repentance. And this is the point that Naomi finds herself in. She spent all this time walking, and she's the inner reflection and everything. And that's why this book is not about Ruth. It is about Naomi's faith journey. We see ourselves reflected in Naomi and what she's looking for and seeking. Verse 22, so Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess, returned from the region of Moab. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So there are two harvests. We know there's the barley harvest and there's the wheat harvest. They're arriving in the beginning of the barley harvest. So the barley harvest, whoop, yep, I got that right. 
So if we're looking at the Jewish calendar up here, they would have arrived sometime during the month of Adar, which occurs late February, early March time. You know, this is the time where they would bring in the barley, and then they would bring the sheep out into the fields to eat the rest of the barley. Then they'd plant the wheat so they could harvest the wheat later on as well. So this is the time that they're arriving. They're all, the people are gathering together. That's why everyone's in the city and greets her when they see her, because they've, they've been bringing in the sheaves. Everyone's working hard to get all the barley processed so they can have food to eat. So now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from Elimelech's family. So just because I, I do, I love this. I, I'm going to give a little insight. It's going to be Boaz, just in case you didn't know the rest of the story. And I love that Boaz is a part of Elimelech's family. Just because you see one bad seed in a family doesn't mean the entire family's bad. Can we always remember that? You know, it's so easy to say, can you believe so-and-so's kid? Man, that whole family, they must be terrible as parents. No, maybe the child's just a sinful little human being like we all are. You know, we all have our thoughts and opinions and we choose to do right and wrong. I digress. But he was a prominent man of substance whose name was Boaz. Now Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, please let me go out to the field and glean grain before anyone in whose eyes I may find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth went out and gleaned in the field behind the reapers. She just so happened to be in the field of Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. And we've said it before, and I'll say it again. Coincidence is not a kosher word. We, God's working even when we don't see him working. I mean, for crying out loud, we have a Gentile woman who knows Torah. Can, can we, like, acknowledge this is interesting? That means Naomi has had such an impact on Ruth that Ruth knows that she is allowed to go and glean in the field. It is according to Torah that she's allowed to do that. In fact, we have that in this week's Torah portion, Kitetse, uh, in Devarim, chapter 24, verse 19 through 22. I thought Miguel was going to read it, and I was like, oh, he missed it. Well, that's cool. Now we got a, a second part of the Torah portion. That's awesome. So it says this. So this week's Torah portion is actually full of a lot of things. Like, I love Deuteronomy. It is one of my favorite books in the Torah because it's just like a gunshot, you know, splattering of the commands. Like, you want to live a good life? Hey, let's start in Deuteronomy. Just start, just start there. Let's pause on Genesis. There's a lot there. Jump to Deuteronomy. You got a lot of do's, don't do's, do's, don't do's. Very cut and dry, very simple. And there are some interesting things in this week's portion. For example, we have rules regarding sexuality. It's a big deal in our country right now. We have rules that bring about, that are, uh, revolve around including proper marriages, homosexuality, and cross-dressing. All issues we have in our country right now. And the Torah says, hey, there is a righteous standard. This is the righteous standard. We also have in this week's portion the prohibition of leaving a corpse hanging overnight. That brings to mind our Messiah. He was taken down before nightfall. You know, we also have how to handle a rebellious child. It's a little intense. Not going to lie there. In this instance, I'm kind of glad we don't live in the land under a theocracy because I love my children. And it's, a, it's an intense thing to handle when we see these things. But there are two primary focuses that we're going to be focusing on this week and next week that are in this week's Torah portion. And first is the laws regarding gleaning. 
We're going to go over that this week. And next week, we'll go over the Leverite marriage. And that's a fun one, too. That's a big one there. There's a lot going on there, especially when it comes to our Messiah and salvation. So when you reap, this is in Devarim, when you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you are not to turn back to get it. It is for the outsider, for the orphan, and for the widow. Two checkmark boxes there for Ruth. Did we all notice that? Two checkmark boxes. She's an outsider, and she's a widow. In order that Adonai, your God, may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you are not to search through the branches afterwards. It is for the outsider, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you harvest your vineyard, you are not to pick over it afterward. It is for the outsider, for the orphan, and for the widow. You are to remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. So we see that it's a mitzvah to remember the poor and the downtrodden that are among us and to give them a hand up, not a hand out. Because in order for the poor widow and the orphan to get those sheaves, they have to get off their derriere and go into the field and find them. You know, and it reminds me of when Messiah gives the parable of the pearl of greatest price. A man was walking through a field, and he found a pearl of greatest price. And then he sold everything he had so he could buy that field. Maybe that man was downtrodden, and he was doing something else, and he found something of treasure, of wealth there, and wanted to go get it. It's just cool to see those little nuggets all connect themselves. See, this, simple, this system is exemplified in Ruth because she is a foreigner who's dwelling in the land. Verse 4, back in Ruth. Soon after Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, so he was away for the first gleaning, so he doesn't know that Ruth, or excuse me, that Naomi has come back to the town. He was away, and he's come back. This all sounding familiar, David talked about the, the king who comes out, and he visits his field, he was away, but now he's come back, and all of a sudden there's someone there who needs repentance and who wants forgiveness. All these things, all, they all run through the, the entirety of Torah. They all connect together for our Messiah. So he's away, and he comes back, and he said to his harvesters, Adonai be with you. And they replied, may Adonai bless you. Then Boaz asked the foreigner, uh, excuse me, the foreman of his harvesters, hey, whose young woman is this? She's a Moabite woman who came back from Naomi from the region of Moab. And the foreman replied, oh, excuse me, and the, and the foreman replied, she asked, uh, whoop, excuse me, she asked, please allow me to glean and gather among the barley sheaves behind the harvesters. So she came and has been working in the field since morning until now, except for a little while in the shelter. So Boaz shows up. He's like, hey, who's that chick? She's kind of good looking. Why is she in the middle of the field? She's young. She's married, married age. Why is she gleaning? She shouldn't be. That's for widows. Why is this woman here? And they say, hey, she, she asked if she could tag along and glean behind us anything that we accidentally dropped or left. And we said, yeah, sure. And he's like, okay, sounds good. And... She's a hard worker. She's a Proverbs 31 woman. Boaz, Boaz is intrigued by this. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, listen to me, my daughter. 
Do not go and glean in another field or even pass on from here, but stay close to my female workers. Keep your eyes on the field that they are harvesting and follow after them. I strongly ordered the young men not to touch you. When you are thirsty, you can come and go to the jars and drink from the water the young men have drawn. Then she fell upon her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you have noticed me, even though I'm a foreigner? And Boaz replied, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother in the land of your birth and came to a people you did not know before. May Adonai repay you for what you have done, and may you be fully rewarded by Adonai, God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So in the midst of this personal introspection, Naomi failed to realize the huge blessing she had right in front of her, namely Ruth. Ruth was this amazing blessing, and Boaz sees that and says, oh, you're such a blessing to your mother-in-law. And yet your mother-in-law is bitter. She's Mara. She's not happy. The book of Ruth is about Naomi's journey, not Ruth's. Ruth's along for the, she's along for the journey, but it's not about her trusting. It is about Naomi's trusting that God will provide. It is in this unacknowledged blessing that we will inevitably set in, that will inevitably set in motion the events that will bring about Naomi's own personal salvation and redemption. This is the case also in our own lives. The blessings are there. We just need to open our eyes and account for them. You know, because sometimes it's hard. Sometimes anxiety wells up in us. We get anxious about so many things: a looming bill, an unexpected bill, a wayward child. Or perhaps an argument with a friend or a spouse. Those are things that they bind up in us and they can cause us to become bitter if we don't deal with them. And yet, these things are nothing, the things we struggle with, are nothing compared to what we have with us today, the blessings we have today. And we need to take account of that. I want to end with this. This is a quote, and I'm sure you, majority of you have heard this before. And it goes like this. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you to see what the Lord has done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly. And you will be singing as the days go by. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. Let's take account of what God has already done. Shabbat shalom.